Hey everybody, welcome to the Nikos show today. I've got a real treat for you today. I learned so much about public speaking from this guy. He's one of the few public speakers that doesn't make me fall asleep. I met him in Vienna and the slides weren't working and he had to improvise just on the trot. So welcome today, Abraham Popko. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. And uh, uh, thank you. Thank you for the compliment. Um, yeah, wow. Thank you. Yeah, that talk in Vienna was really was really very interesting and very special and a very, very interesting crowd. So yes, you're basically, you. you're basically talking, we're talking, you're talking about AI and machine learning and how we need to embrace it and those kind of things. Um, so today we're going to kind of examine possible worst case scenarios and also the, I guess we can think about good case scenarios. Um, the good case scenarios is like we end up in something like Star Trek, where it's sort of like space bound communism, where Nobody has to work. Everything's free. Everything's amazing. Um, or we just end up into this completely dystopian civil war revolution where the poor are basically stealing everything from the rich and uh, because of AI. So, yeah, let, let's... Uh, what do you think? Um, I, I, I don't know. I think there's great value in exploring the different opportunities and different dangers and asking these kinds of questions, even though we're almost 100% sure to get the answers wrong, that means people that uh, envision a full dystopia or people that envision a full utopia are probably both very, very wrong. We're probably gonna end up being something in the middle, even possibly something that we can't imagine or at least don't imagine. So when it comes to AI, what we should do is understand the technology, understand how it impacts uh, human behaviors, how it enables certain behaviors, how it encourages other behaviors, uh, and just keep an eye out. Uh, but we can't responsibly say that the world is headed for a uh, utopia or for a dystopia. And uh, we certainly uh, can't um, can't take preventive measures because we might end up doing more damage, more damage than good. So if we if we think that AI is headed towards a terrible dystopia, and therefore all if we think that because of AI we are headed towards some sort of terrible uh, dystopia, and as a result we have to take certain measures or regulate AI or develop AI in a particular way or put certain put certain restraints on how. AI is being used, we might end up doing more harm than good. We don't know how to do these things uh, responsibly. Uh, so what we could do is keep an eye open, be careful. If we see something going horribly wrong, try to correct it, a small adjustment, and then see and you know continue, continue forward. So you've been um, a software developer since 1990. Could you have imagined things ever being so advanced with AI now compared to, to back then? What an interesting question. Um, yeah, yes and no. I'll tell you, this is, this is very personal. This is me. Um, we thought that computers would be very smart. We thought that computers might one day be able to play chess. And in the 1990s, 
uh, one of the holy grails or one of the uh, benchmarks for AI was a machine that could play chess. <laughs> chess uh, is like so, the most basic. Yeah, because chess, and the reason is because chess was a game that required a great deal of intelligence. Um, intelligence in some sense. And that was before machine learning was as developed as it was today. So we thought that uh, chess would be would be one of the would be one of the symbols of artificial intelligence. Uh, since then, we've come to come to learn that humans have all kinds of intelligences. Today, one of the uh, one of the uh, grails is understanding natural language, understanding natural language in a particular context, and being able to respond. Now, that means more than let's say in Alexa or a Google Translate, but being able to understand language with all its nuances, even words like this or that, which in English are highly contextual. The word this doesn't mean anything unless you know, give me another one of those, doesn't mean anything unless you're highly contextually aware. And um, um, and we, you know, we would like machines to understand language, we'd like to understand, to understand tone, to understand inflection. So we, I did not imagine that the interface would be uh, as advanced, that you'd be able to actually talk to a machine using your voice and for the machine to be able to understand your voice, understand your context. And we're still not there yet, but we're making some nice steps in the same, in the same direction. Um, <clears throat> because of uh, the way that the cloud has evolved, artificial intelligence uh, still needs a great deal of computing power. And most of us don't have that computing power of, in our homes or in our hands, but we have access to it through the cloud. So whenever I use Alexa or I use Siri, uh, a lot of the a lot of the computing doesn't happen on my phone. A lot of the computing happens at a very powerful uh, data center, and it's the high speed networks or the high speed communication, along with the high capacity data centers that allow that to happen. And that is something that we didn't uh, we didn't imagine back then. We thought that anybody that needs artificial intelligence will have to have all the computing power on site to have everything nearby to do that work. So. Looking at your CV on LinkedIn, you've got a lot of, you work at a lot of these large companies. I would imagine that you're starting to see job pressure by AI probably in the last six months or so. Would that be correct? That is certainly the sentiment. A lot of people are afraid that their jobs will be taken by AI. And um, uh, that has been a, an agreement, that has been a, a concern, that has been a concern for a long, long time. Ever since machines first came around, people were always concerned that their job will be taken by machine, by automation. We know the stories of the Luddites when, when uh, machine-operated looms started taking over human ability. And then when computers started, com uh, started coming into the, in the industry, People who are afraid, people like bookkeepers and librarians and um, anybody that did manual labor was afraid that automated, that machines would take over their work. And new jobs and new opportunities came around. What is particularly frightening about AI is we see AI doing things that until now seemed to be uniquely human. So when I ask an AI machine to write a few lines of Python code that do something, 
And that task might have taken me three days to do the research, to find the right libraries, to write some sample code, to try it again. And I thought that that was a uniquely human experience and that would justify my job as a developer, that my boss would tell me to find, to develop some software to automate a task and I would do the research and I would write the prototypes and I would find it. Now AI could do it in a few days. So I am very concerned about a machine taking my, uh, my job. And that is, that is a concern. That is a concern of machines taking over. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there will be, or hopefully will be, or might be, always those areas of endeavor or areas of work by which a human brings unique value in which a machine cannot bring value. And I don't know what they, uh, I don't know what they are. I don't know what they are. And an interesting moral question that I don't have the answer to is, if we feel that AI is going to bring benefits, great benefits to the human being, but it'll also threaten some people's livelihood, is that enough of a reason not to develop, uh, not to develop technology? And in the past, had people thought that way, we wouldn't have developed a steam engine or we wouldn't have developed a diesel engine or we wouldn't have developed a computer because we wanted, we would want to preserve existing jobs. And now it turns out that the steam engine, the diesel engine and the computer and many, many other, other technologies of automation have brought great blessing. And so, um, and a question is if we feel it is going to reduce some human labor, is that a good reason not to not to develop it? Uh, in general, we believe that any technology that is able to reduce the human toil and able to allow human beings to live more comfortably or to live with less effort or to express their humanities in less labor-intensive ways are considered a good thing. We do think that machines are good in some essential in such a way. Machines are a good thing. Cars are good. Machines are good. Uh, farming tools are good. Agricultural tools are good. Um, forgive me one moment. We do believe that technology is good and can be utilized for good. And the technological age has brought great blessing to it and has freed people to develop their art, to develop their religions, to develop their other forms of uh, interaction. And most of the jobs that many people in the modern world have today involve information, involve shifting information, involve manipulating information. And a lot of us, maybe everybody on this podcast, a lot of us sit in air conditioned rooms or in air conditioned driving cabins or in air conditioned environments. And uh, we do not do backbreaking intensive uh, labor and the, the backbreaking intensive labor does not get done by human muscle or by animal muscle. It gets done by machine. It gets done by uh, forms of converting forms of energy into labor. And that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, I agree that, that in general, most of progress machines have been good. Um, can't, we can't deny that with so many things like we don't have to, I don't have to sew this t-shirt, you know, I don't have to make the shaver and, get the batteries and electronics i didn't have to like manufacture this thing this mic here um you know, this this mic would have maybe cost ten thousand dollars um 50 years ago this kind of quality mic um but with, with ai it's different in that um 
it's impacting pretty much all of the intellectual jobs at the one go. And um, I reckon I don't I don't know how many people in the cities, but it must be at least half percentage of the, the society. So you have all these people that have migrated from their farms where they have homesteads to places where they're they don't have a homestead environment where they're growing their own food and space, uh, and they're working in mostly intellectual jobs. And when when those jobs are displaced, then um, they do they don't have any means to to grow their food and things like that. So um, there has to be some kind of intervention to stop basically society degrading into anarchy. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer, and I don't know if intervention will help. And I don't know who will do the intervention, who, who's responsible uh, for doing the intervention. Um, Capitalism has brought great benefits to, to human beings. Capitalism is the most effective form we know of creating markets and rewarding people for their uh, creative energy and for their, hard, for their hard labor. Now, true that capitalism often brings it about, at least the modern implementation of capitalism, brings it about that wealth gets con- concentrated in the hands of uh, a few or that great wealth gets concentrated in the hands of a few. I'm particularly thinking about the American uh, flavor of, uh, of capitalism uh, and technology and has, has bought that about uh, in a very visible way. Um, the thing is, what are we uh, concerned about? So if capitalism raises everybody's standard of living and everybody lives a better life as a result of capitalism but some people get raised much 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 more then maybe that's maybe that's not so bad so a company like amazon or a company like tesla has made the world a better place for everybody for everybody and it had made the world certainly a better place for the owners and investors in amazon uh, for them, the world is a much, much better place. But everybody else also enjoys the high availability of goods and the high variety of goods and for an effective and cheap market for delivering goods. Now, the counter argument to that might be, well, Amazon did not make the world a better place for the small retailers. Amazon did not make the world a better place for the people that own small, uh, small businesses. I don't have a good answer to that. That might be true. Uh, but many of those small businesses did find new opportunities by becoming Amazon resellers or by becoming Amazon retailers or by becoming part, uh, uh, marketplace partners of various kinds. Um, so, uh, and, and the AI might end up concentrating wealth in the hands of a few people that are the owners of AI. But hopefully it'll raise the amount of wealth for, for everybody. So increasing wealth gaps, increase, increasing wealth uh, disparity is not necessarily a bad thing if everybody's wealth is increasing all along. So if I make a certain amount of money and then in the future world, I'll be making 10 times as much money and you'll be making uh, in, in that future world, you'll be making 10,000 times as much money and the gap is growing. 
Okay, but we're all getting better. We're all improving at different rates, but we're, but our, all of our lives is getting are getting better. A, a, a alternate concern or another concern might not necessarily be the distribution of wealth, but something that goes along with the distribution of wealth, and that might be the distribution of power. And power means our ability to determine the future or, or somebody else's way behavior or somebody else's opportunities. And that might even be more concerning than the distribution of wealth. So uh, we believe in freedom. We believe that people should be free to, um, to express their minds. People should be free to live their own ways. People should be free to congregate and organize as they see fit. And people should be free to make their own mistakes and pay the price for those mistakes and then correct those mistakes and do something else. And um, there might be a certain concentration of power uh, that happens. Uh, and we see that's already happening today. I don't really have, even though I'm, I'm an open-minded person and I like reading all kinds of stuff, I don't really have access to all ideas in the same manner. Some ideas come to me more easily because of the recommendation engines of the different social media and the way they work. And some ideas are harder for me to come by because the recommendation engines don't suggest those ideas to me and I have to go looking for them. And maybe I'm not smart enough to know where to look for them or how to find them. So I end up reading uh, the same, I end up finding myself in a kind of echo chamber and it's harder for me to find ideas, mainstream ideas. That might be something that is that should be of concern. And here too, I don't know how to regulate that. I don't know if anybody knows how to regulate it. I doubt it. I'm using ChatGBT like, I'd say 60% of the time, the amount of code that I'm writing comes from chat, straight from ChatGBT. It's allowing me to take on more work and makes a lot of my tasks less boring. Um, but I guess that stops me hiring a, a junior developer and giving him the work to do or him or her to do the work. So I'm thinking, what do all these junior developers do to get to catch up, to get to compete in the market? If like you have all these senior developers that are know how to use ChatGPT and they don't need this these junior people to take up the slack, how do those people ever get any experience in the career? And, and I just, I don't, I don't, we're not, we're not sure of how that's going to happen. Although they can learn quicker, um, then maybe maybe they'll everybody will just have to become more competitive AI powered developers. And I guess I guess that's good in that sense if, if everybody becomes AI powered developers, the standards go up and the productivity must go up to get your job. Just like a farmer who knows how to drive a tractor is this more okay. efficient than the tractor, a, a manual laborer, you know, but there might be fewer jobs. Okay, that's an interesting one. So let's um, let's explore that. Uh, part of the reason that you're able to use ChatGPT effectively is because you're a good coder. So you're 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 a competent coder. So you could ask GPT. You would never take code from ChatGPT and and turn it into production. You don't trust Chat ChatGPT that much. You have ChatGPT. I do it all the time, but I you know, do you check don't. it, of course. Of course, you check it, and maybe you edit it, and you tweak it, and yes, you change yes. it, and then you put it into production. Yes, for sure, man. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I would not trust ChatGPT. I would not say ChatGPT. Write to me a piece of code that optimizes something or that does something, 
and then compile it and handle it into uh, into production without oh, testing no. it right? or, or, <laughs> or, 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 right? Because why? ChatGPT can make mistakes. It might misunderstand things. I might not have expressed myself uh, correctly. Um, so my, my, your ability to read Python, you, you develop in Python, I imagine. Or in no, C. I'm JavaScript, TypeScript, JavaScript, that kind okay. of stuff. Your de- ability to develop JavaScript is not redundant. You actually make a lot of use of it. You understand programming. You understand the, the semantic models and the conceptual models. You have ChatGPT generate the, the code, and then you read the code. You probably even read it line by line. And you read the code. You tweak it where necessary. And you uh, you generate it now. Um, when that that's going to change one day, and maybe one day we will find ways to generate more higher production, higher higher quality production code, and not have to test it. For instance, today when we have compilers that know how to translate Java into uh, machine into into virtual machine code or into Java code, or we know how to translate C++ into uh, machine code. We don't read the machine code at all. Most of us wouldn't even know how to read the the machine code at all. There might be a day, I think in the distant future, where you could give a order to the chat GPT and it'll generate code for you. And you won't even have to read the code. It'll, It'll do it right away. You will have to find some way to know that the chat GPT understood and implemented correctly what you had said because but we have to do that even with human developers when i give a human developer a task even if i'm not a programmer if i give a human developer a task and i ask the human developer develop a piece of code that knows how to do something particular and she does and i don't know how to read c i might still need to find a way to make sure that the code implemented is indeed uh to my intent it indeed does what i hope it needs to do now, back to your point about the junior developer. If I'm able to have ChatGPT be my junior developer, then why do I need a junior developer? The ChatGPT is, is cheaper. And to there, the task is, well, what are those things that ChatGPT can, can't do and junior developers can do? And since learning Python now with ChatGPT or learning JavaScript with ChatGPT, has become very, very easy. One of the skills developers need to learn very early on, and maybe what you're saying is that we should start even in universities or even in the uh, courses that train uh, programming skills, should train people how to use ChatGPT in order to um, in order to use code. And I'll give you a good example. I'm, when I'm, I was I'm in... of the opinion people, people just quit university immediately and just go into ChatGPT to learn everything because... If you're a developer at university, it's pointless just sitting in all these exams. Just leave when you're 16, 17, 18, 19, and just go get a job as a developer. You know, I, I just wasted so much time at university. And I, I'm not, I'm not going to say that. I learned a lot of stuff. Forgive me, my tutors, if you're watching. I had some really good mentors. Sorry, but I mean, in general, universities are just going to fall so far behind. And, and a lot of them are just rip-offs anyway. So... Um, you know, if, if the purpose of university is to train you 
in the skills needed to have a job, you're probably right. You don't need universities because you could learn job training elsewhere. You might be able to learn job training from ChatGPT. If the purpose of university is to teach you how to think, is to teach you how to open your mind, is to teach you how to explore, is to teach you new ways of thinking, um, I don't you So anybody that learns ChatGPT might not have, that learns how to program using ChatGPT might not have the skills needed to open a new business or to develop a new kind of technology or to address a new kind of human need that arises. They'll be able to, to hammer out industrial strength uh, Java code or JavaScript code. Uh, and for many of us, that's enough. But we also need people who are going to be able to develop new ways of doing things and new technologies and break their heads trying to do new stuff. And for those people, the university might be a real, a real need. That's it with regard to university. When I was a student in university, uh, so we, we were expected to learn how to code. At the time, we could be programmed in Pascal and in C and started C++. Google hadn't been, um, hadn't, uh, hadn't been developed yet. And when Google first came out, it was considered cheating to look for code examples on Google. You weren't supposed to do that. You were supposed to look it up in the reference manuals and in the books. But very quickly, people realized that there's nothing wrong with finding examples in Google. And, you know, today they won't let you open Google during an exam, but they probably should. An exam, the, the task should be a kind where you're given a programming task to do. This is the way I imagine university should work is you're giving a programming task to do and you're allowed to use ChatGPT and you're allowed to use any other tool available to you. But you take responsibility for making sure it's exactly correct and exactly uh, to specification and maybe the uh, instructor will give you ambiguous requirements or unclear requirements or requirements that change in the middle. And you will be evaluated not only on your ability to generate code, but your ability to understand the human need and translate that human need into code and understand human, uh, the understand the difference between what a human wants and what a human needs and what a human uh, can afford, uh, right? When doing business, when developing technology for a company, there are always three things that that I ask about my customer. What does my customer need? What does my customer want? And what can my customer afford? And if I, developing so if I develop something that he wants but doesn't need and can't pay for, then that's not a viable business model. And if I develop something that he needs but doesn't want and can't pay for, that's also not a good business model. And if I develop something that he can afford but he doesn't, he doesn't need it or doesn't want it, or he needs it but doesn't understand that he needs it and doesn't want it, then again, I can't do that business model. And anybody that's in business development understands that they need to find that sweet spot, something the customer needs, something the customer wants, and something that the customer is able and willing to pay for. Um, and uh, that might be a skill that would be necessary to give young developers is when your customer asks for something, don't just do it. Understand what they what they're trying to what problem they're trying to solve. Understand their problem better, and that will make you a better developer. And that might be a thing that junior developers might be encouraged to to learn is not just how to translate requirements into code. And that's a question that we're not trained to ask. So when we are given a an exercise in school, and the teacher tells us develop an algorithm for optimizing a particular 
the traveling salesman or an ATM machine or whatever it is or, or memory management. We're not told to ask, why do you need that? Why is that a good idea? Why would anybody want uh, to do that? Um, maybe there are better ways to do that. We just do it. We do the exercise the way we're told. We're not at, we, do, we aren't trained to ask why would somebody want it that way. So junior developers are going to have to change. They're going to have to learn new things. Uh, but hopefully there'll still be jobs for them in that in that new world. We think we hope. Do you advocate a UBI soon? Just because I think that I don't like the idea of a UBI because it just makes the government even bigger. But I don't see enough human goodness around me to know that people will take out, look after other people's needs when they they can't afford to feed themselves because we have been trained to be a society that is basically independent of our neighbours. Um, these city jobs, everyone's under pressure, no one has time to get to know their neighbours, everybody's moving, transitioning. So you're left with a society that uh, doesn't know how to be, be a tribe and this discrete atomic individuals living without any connection to those around them is a very vulnerable place to be because you can't trust on your neighbour next to you who's got a job and food to feed you when you're starving. So if there's not a, a safety valve in there, you're going to basically have people that are starving. I mean, people are, are about to starve. They're going to fight for food to live, right? So there must be there must be a safety valve unless the government wants to have may build massive prisons for people that are breaking laws to feed themselves. Okay. Um, so you, you, you answered the question and uh, that's, that might be where we should, where we should explore from. If UBI is going to um, encourage, if UBI is going to encourage laziness or going to encourage incompetence or going to encourage people living off others, then it might be a bad, a bad idea. And if UBI is going to, to stifle our senses of kindness, we're not going to be kind to our neighbors and our friends and our family anymore because, well, there's UBI. So they get what they need from the, this massive government. So I don't have to care for my, my friends anymore. Um, then uh, that, that might be a bad idea. If UBI somehow says there's a minimum, minimum amount that we think that all human beings universally or nationally, maybe, maybe it'll be hard to implement universal uh, basic income at the, at the global level, but maybe we could do it at the national level. At a, a country might be able to do it. Um, and we say, let's, since we have so much wealth and our means of producing food are so available and people, as long as they are not starving, and by starving, I mean not enough food, not enough medicine, not some kind of education and some kind of shelter and some kind of hope of a better future, like we'll define some sort of minimum existence. As long as they are not starving, uh, they will not uh, engage in civil war. Maybe it's a good idea. I don't find that very respectful to people. That means saying, you know, you, you're going to you're going to go to civil war unless I feed you some minimum amount. So I'm just going to feed you just enough to keep you quiet, and then uh, you won't uh, you you won't rebel against uh, against my power. I don't find that very respectful. But maybe that's the practical thing to do. Uh, 
it will create for large government. It will create for mass amounts of corruption. But beyond food, people have another need. And beyond basic income and beyond um, medicine or vaccination, clean water and shelter, people have a need, a desperate need to contribute, a desperate need to do something of value, a desperate need to, to do something valuable. So we're, if I'm unemployed and I'm collecting unemployment, or if I'm unemployed and I'm collecting UBI, so it's true, I'm not hungry, I'm not starving, and my kids are being educated, and I have medical care. But do I really have that sense of value that I'm contributing to society in a, in a valuable way? And it doesn't have to be in, in the industry. It might be in the arts. But I, we, I need something and where I feel that, that I'm bringing value to somebody else. And the, a paid salary, the, the reason that we feel so good about getting a salary, those of us that are fortunate enough to get a salary or to get income or to, to get paid for the work they do, either as independents or as employees, is not because now we could feed our family. That's good. That's fun. That's cool. But because I was able to provide enough value to somebody else that they gave me money so that now I could feed my family. It's the, it, that's the satisfaction that owning money, that having money comes from. You don't have that satisfaction when you inherit money or find money or win the lottery. And if you speak to people that have won the lottery, they live comfortable lives until the money runs out and then they don't live comfortable lives. Uh, and when do they, when do people that win the lottery find um, satisfaction in their, in their new life? If they invest the money wisely, if they start uh, investing in relationships around them, they start investing in philanthropy, they start, they, they build a family maybe, they start engaging with others in a valuable way and they find ways to use their newfound wealth in order to bring value to themselves or others. Then they find meaning in their winning. But if all they do is start buying all the luxury goods that they're able to afford, then they have a short-lived type of happiness. And after a couple of months or a couple of years, uh, it typically, not always, it typically goes away. Um, so that's one thought about, uh, about UBI. Um, yes, it will create for a very large government. That is certainly, certainly true. And governments are large enough as they are. And governments very often consume a great deal of resources without providing value in between. Maybe instead of UBI or in addition to UBI, we need to start encouraging people to be more family aware. Start encouraging family structures. Be aware of what your family, your children, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, and your extended family what their needs are, what their abilities are. We still do it in our nuclear family. That means a husband and wife, for the most part, uh, are often considered a financial unit. So when it comes to raising children and one parent might, in, might stay home uh, raising the kid and the other parent might go out to do work. So there we realize that if we don't function as a financial unit where one invests in the building of the family and the other one invests in bringing wealth from the outside, it'll be hard for us to raise uh, to raise a family. We still don't totally, totally outsource the raising of our children to, to nannies or to babysitters. We still want to do it ourselves, at least a lot of us. And some of us also have grandparents that help us raising, raise the children. And in, and in, re and in return, we will support maybe the grandparents or help them out to, with, you know, provide them with, um, with company or provide them with a companionship. 
uh, and provide them with uh, some some form of uh, of existence. Uh, and that's something that as human beings, we, sure, we certainly need to improve. We need to become more charitable. We need to become more generous, more philanthropic. We need to become more kind, not, not because of the threat of civil war or civil unrest, but because that's the right thing to do. When we have relatives, friends, or fellow or neighbors or fellow countrymen that are going through a rough time, we must, the community must find ways to, to help them, to support them. That's one of the, re- one of the, I'm slightly jealous of the Jewish community because you have such good family infrastructure, um, time together. You know, it's um, it's beautiful to see. I mean, mind you, in Ukraine, I experienced that as well. We have it's um, it's better here than some other countries. I also had a good family in Scotland, still have, and Greece too. So, I mean, it's I'm a very multicultural background, but I think the the um, are you are you, are you Jewish? I imagine you are. Yeah. I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish, and I yeah. agree. And Part of it has to part of it has to do in the Scottish and Ukrainian it's the same. When we have a shared culture and we have shared stories and we have shared history and shared values, it's easy for us to to congregate and also care care for each other and recognize uh, each other's needs. When we become a nation of immigrants or a nation of people that are that are multicultural, with all the blessing that brings, and multiculturalism is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it opens our minds and it helps us become more diverse and helps us experience new things. But it does weaken certain family bonds and it does weaken certain traditional bonds. And it's harder for us to then feel generous or kindness to our neighbor if my neighbor doesn't look like me and talk like me and sound like me and believe the same things I believe. So it brings a lot of blessing. And now I'll learn new ways of thinking and new ways of, of experiencing the world. And I'll learn new ways of engaging and new ways of of expressing my humanity, and that is all wonderful, but I might not feel the same generosity towards him unless I get to know them and then they're my friends. But until I got to know them and they're my friends, I might not feel the same social bonding. I might not feel the same responsibility to assist them in their time uh, in their time of need, unless I'm particularly generous, but most of us are not particularly generous. Most of us are average. That's why we call it average. Uh, so yes, I, I certainly I certainly agree with you. And that's why it's important, even as we become more diverse and more multicultural and more uh, and we travel more, we must all maintain our family ties and we must all maintain uh, some sort of relationship to our traditions and to our cultures and to the stories and tell our children about the families that they came from and tell our children about the traditions and encourage them to maintain relationships with their brothers and sisters and cousins, also because that enriches them in the humanistic way and also because they'll be able to help out somebody who falls on hard times or they'll be able to find help themselves if they fall on hard times and help might not need money. Sometimes when somebody falls on a hard time because AI took his job, let's say, he might not need money. He might need encouragement. He might need advice. He might need somebody to believe in him and, and, and offer him an, 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 an immigration opportunity or, or an education opportunity or, or some other business opportunity. And all of us have done well at jobs, not because we're so smart and because we're so talented and so motivated. That's certainly true. But a lot of us have done well at the jobs because somebody gave us a chance and somebody believed that we could actually do something and somebody was willing to 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 try it to try us out. And 
we willing to uh, to let us do something and to give us an opportunity to prove ourselves? So that might be something that we, we should take more than in addition or instead of the uh, UBI is encourage everybody to be aware of those around us and, you know, take take a little more responsibility for their for their jobs or for their careers or for their families or for something something like that. And UBI might be the cheap way out, might be the, the easy way out. Right? Let's just as you as you started out by saying, you know, it's a small price to pay in order to uh um to, to eliminate or reduce the threat of civil unrest. But is that what we want to do? It's interesting to hear what you say about purpose if you're lucky enough to have like a, a purposeful job, I mean, I don't know what the exact statistics are, but I reckon probably only 10 to 20% of people actually like their job. So having I I mean, I can't say that I like just working for other people doing software development. If I had, if I had UBI, I'd probably be doing a lot more podcasts. Um, I could, I absolutely love, I love doing this. This is like, I just love talking to people. I love playing music. I love playing uh, in, in, a, in a worship band church the guitar and i'd love to practice the guitar a lot more and um, i'd love to practice more um boxing and things like that but this need for for work at the moment means that I, i'm forced to work pay the bills um but then also there's like i mean this is this is the west in a sense you know the, you know austria scotland okay ukraine's a bit different um but you've got a lot of countries where there isn't such high social standards. Like, for example, India, you've got a lot of the caste system there, and I think that AI could make it even more unfair there because you'll have all this intellectual class of people that can use AI to make everyone else's life even even harder if there's no jobs and there's not the social structure there to support the basic you know, needs of people. So India... India is a poor country before AI came around and AI possibly will make it worse. Though I think that over the last 50 years, technology did improve things for everybody in India to some extent or another. There's still very, very poor people in India. But now many, many people in India have access to education and have access to vaccine, access to, to, to good to, to health to some extent. It's very, very far from, from where it should be. And there's still a lot of good work that needs to be done. Uh, but the fact that in India or in China, there's a very, very large growing middle class of people that own, that have homes with running water, of people that have uh, flush toilets. Flush toilets is such an amazing, amazing thing. If every person in India will have a flush toilet, then, you know, that's, that, that's already way beyond where they where they were 50 years ago and way beyond where they were today that's uh that that is that's a good thing and in most modern and most western countries people have that and that is a blessing that has been bought that's almost that's almost ubi in some sense everybody even even having a a, a toilet where you can have a bucket of water and manually flush it is also a luxury you know that that the technology for a truck to come round and suck all that stuff up. I mean, that's a luxury, isn't it, as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even not a flush toilet. Even just have access to enough water to, to drink and clean oneself is a luxury. And it's a luxury that more and more Indians are having. There is more and more piping 
going into even the poorest villages, into the poorest slums, people are not dying of thirst. They're dying of disease. They're, they're dying of lack of vaccination. There are many, many things that need to be, that need to be solved. Um, and hopefully we will solve them. And hopefully AI will enable us to, to solve them. And once a person has clean water and he has hygiene and he has uh, the ability to keep himself clean and keep himself healthy to some extent, he could start um, devoting some resources in order to improve his education, in order to improve his his financial well-being, and in order to improve his social his social status. Maybe the world, maybe the word middle class is not a useful word anymore. So when we talk about middle class, we talk about extreme poverty. These people do not have enough uh, wealth in order to uh, to to exist in some respectable way. We talk about the people that have extreme wealth and they have much more than a human being could use or could consume in a lifetime. And then we have the middle class. Everybody else is the middle class where they, they work and they, um, they work and they pay their bills and they, they struggle through the financial issues, but they're, they're, they have some basic sustainability. And maybe that's not a useful word anymore because maybe the middle class doesn't really exist. There are many, many levels and stratas of middle class. And India might be a good example where they're, they're, they're great, great social, or great financial disparities or great financial differences um, where everybody has some some level of existence and people are hoping to climb up the social ladder or the economic ladder or the real estate ladder, whatever ladder they're hoping to climb, but they're not a middle class in, in any unifying sense, in any unifying sense of the uh, of the word. Now, when you say that if you had UBI, you would devote yourself to your podcast and you would devote yourself to your music and you would devote yourself to uh, other things that are of interest to you. You would still want, I hope, to find that you're contributing to somebody else's well-being. You would want other people to listen to your podcast. If you created a podcast with all the free time that UBI made available to you, but nobody listened to it and nobody found delight in it, nobody found entertainment in it, you might not find that a very fulfilling existence. And if you created music, but nobody finds your music to be inspiring or, or, or enjoyable, and you, you played your music to yourself, you, you, Nikos, might not find that to be a very fulfilling kind of existence. You would want to know, what do I do in order to bring delight uh, to other people? And uh, the same probably goes with uh, with other things. Now, not everybody's like that. Maybe some people won't mind creating a podcast or creating music that nobody else is interested is interested in. But when you, when people, I don't know about you, I don't know enough about you, but when people create podcasts and they see that 100 people or 500 people or 1,000 people listen to their podcast, and maybe they commented on it, and maybe the comment was something like, your, your podcast provoked me or your podcast upset me or your podcast entertained me or informed me or, or made me curious to learn more um, or, or provided a new perspective that I totally, totally disagree with, but it actually made me help me sharpen my thoughts or help me understand what I think. That's a wonderful thing. That's much more wonderful than somebody who says, well, I gave a podcast and I was able to do it because somebody gave me a UBI. What motivates people to create music is when they create music and they get a standing ovation. Or at least, or if not a standing ovation, somebody approaches him and said, you moved me. You made me feel something that I haven't felt, uh, I haven't felt in a while. It's very hard to perform music without an audience 
of any uh, of any kind. People that perform in in churches or that perform in in any other need other people. They desperately need other people, and the the wealth that comes along to some of the music creators is just a proxy for that. The the real value of creating music is being able to move somebody else. That's why we create music and poetry and all the good things that we do is that we're hoping to inspire somebody, hoping to, to make them feel something that they haven't felt yet. Yeah, I absolutely love the feeling of, um, I played in five worship on stage four, four times last week and I would do it more. I just love being there, helping people to, to connect with, with God. And, and I use the bass guitar and the electric guitar, um, I'm not a lead. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I help the band, but um, it's great fun. And, and Ukraine is one of the one of the best things about being here. Yeah. Which church do you play in? Somewhere in the Ukraine? Yep. I mean, I don't. Even, it's not even the same language. I don't understand the language, but I still play the songs. I just get the chords and I know the songs, and I get quite a lot of freedom to choose between acoustic, electric, and distorted electric. And uh, the bass guitar, so I'll actually on, on the stage switch between them. And you don't speak Personal. Ukrainian? No, not very well. I, I've got enough that I can meet somebody who's walking the dog and talk about simple things that you talk about when you're walking dogs together, you know. Right. That must be a very, very satisfying experience to be able to perform music and and somebody, especially in in a war wooden country, when people sometimes turn to religion in order to find to find comfort or in order to find togetherness, and to be able to inspire people by music must be a wonderful uh, must be a wonderful experience, more wonderful than UBI. Yeah, so I had three three not three two two worship two prayer services, one Sunday morning service, which is the biggest, and then one for refugees. So we have a shorter worship service for the refugees, and then talk and then there's some food given to them afterwards we used to have the food given to them outside and they wait but it just gets really hot and the people are queuing up outside so we just basically let the people come into the service first then they get the food obviously some people are just go there to get the food but you know we, we don't have a we can't read people's minds and say oh you're on, you're only here for the food you know and anyway that's not really fair anyway jesus or abraham or it doesn't matter what people believe you still got to feed people right um, what I, okay. And Nikos, our time, our time is approaching the end. I would like to, right. uh, I would yeah. like to wrap up. You've but, got a hard stop. Yeah. Um, the, the idea about queuing outside a church for food as a refugee, on the one hand, having food for yourself and your families is, is wonderful and people will do anything for food. On the other hand, it must be a very humiliating experience. It must not be a positive thing. To, to have to queue up for food. I had never in my life queued up for food. I mean, I queued up in the restaurant or in the, in the school cafeteria, but not because I was hungry, but because I wanted, I queued up to buy a new iPhone, but I never queued up uh, for, for food when I was hungry. And the, the humiliation or the degradation that comes with that is hard for me to imagine. It's hard for me to, to imagine. And um, I mean, people, people have lost lives in that. So that people, it's, it's, it's a little bit crazy here, man. <laughs> it's it's uh, an intense situation, man. So we're back talking to each other after a couple of days because we had quite a busy schedule. And today we're going to revisit um, on the topic of UBI. 
So UBI scares a lot of people because it's bigger government and the bigger government can say to you, um, you don't deserve UBI because you're not behaving. And if you don't have any backup, you know, homesteading food sources, then uh, what are you going to do? You're going to basically, is it might is right, strongest to survive. So I don't know. What's your thoughts about UBI? Well, my first thought about UBI is, is that I'm not an expert on UBI and that um, my, I, I know how to develop software and I know how to do architecture and I know how to design enterprise systems. And um, I have an opinion about UBI or I have thoughts about UBI, but they are not expert thoughts. And I would encourage everybody uh, who's thinking about these topics to one, formulate an opinion and think about the different uh, opinions and think about the different pros and cons and different ways of addressing the issues. But a, a suggestion like UBI has to be approached with a great degree of humility. And um, maybe we need to experiment very carefully, or maybe we need to study the issue very carefully. Um, and we can't borrow credentials. If somebody's very good at AI or at software development or in one of the arts, they might not have a valid opinion on UBI. They, so we have to uh, take care uh, when taking, you know, if somebody's an expert in medicine or in chemistry, even if he has a Nobel Prize in chemistry or in, or in mathematics and physics, that doesn't mean necessarily that he, his opinions are, on UBI are worth listening to. And that certainly holds for my opinions. I'm no expert on UBI, but I do have some thoughts that I'd like to share. And I think that UBI might be able to be, might, might be broken down into two dimensions. Is it the right thing to do? And is it the useful thing to do? Now, uh, if let's talk about is it the right thing to do? The way I imagine uh, UBI being implemented, it will be implemented as a sort of a tax. It'll be implemented as a tax on the, on the rich. Uh, you mentioned government. It'll be implemented as a tax on the haves in order to um, to feed or to provide for the have-nots, and in and it's and it's a, and it's very very specifically a kind of income tax. That's almost the way it's being defined as a kind of income tax. And income tax is always morally problematic because income tax means that the more you produce, the more value you bring, the more you are being uh, being taxed, as opposed to something like VAT, value-added tax where you're taxing consumption. The more you consume, the more tax you pay. And that makes sense because the more you consume, the more you're using the public infrastructure and the more you should pay for the public infrastructure. Income tax says the more um, I generate, the more I am taxed. Yet most countries have income taxes and most countries also have um, uh, a kind of scaled income tax where the more you make, the more a percentage of your margin you actually pay as a tax. And UBI would mean that the wealthy or the very wealthy would have to pay part of their wealth to the um, to the non-wealthy. And they might not agree. And when we say UBI, what we're saying is that the super wealthy would have to pay to support the uh, unwealthy, even if they don't want to. And to take away money from somebody when he does not want to is always an issue. Taxation is always a problem. We believe in taxation because you're contributing to the overall uh, benefit of the society. Maybe you're uh, paying for education or for defense or for environment protection. And here we're specifically saying we're taking away money from the wealthy in order to support 
the underprivileged or the unfortunate or the untalented or the unlucky uh, and the wealthy might not concede. Uh, th that's a moral issue that has to be addressed. It's a moral issue that has to be uh, dealt with. We do not believe in Robin Hood economics. We do not believe in taking money away from the capable just because we can and giving it to the uncapable. Uh, we think that's we think that Robin Hood economics is wrong. We want to encourage people to be as creative as they can. And one way we encourage people to be as creative as they can is by promising them great wealth if they are uh, successful in their uh, in their endeavor. Let's say the reward to Elon Musk uh, for the uh, for the productization of the electric car is immense, immense wealth. And I think he earned that reward. And had that reward not been a potential, then we wouldn't have had all these people trying to uh, productize electric electric cars. That is a very capitalist view of things, and that, for the most part, is my uh, in my view. I believe that capitalism is a right and moral way of uh, distributing uh, wealth and uh, and of distributing labor. So that's some thoughts about the uh, morality of it. The other side of the morality of it is if you have a great deal of wealth and other people don't, your humanity demands of you that you uh, share that wealth within your community, within your family, within your neighborhood, within your uh, country. But that has to be voluntary. And if we could find a way to make UBI somewhat voluntary, and we spoke about this last time, to make it somewhat voluntary, I think that would be very, very good. Family structures are, for the most part, voluntary. Uh, even wider families, where uh, the, the wealthy uncle or grandfather helps support the other people in his family that are less fortunate, or when parents help their kids go through school because the kid doesn't have a job yet and the kid doesn't have an education. Um, that is a voluntary form of uh, not UBI, but of some sort of guaranteed or some sort of support. And maybe if we could educate ourselves and others that philanthropy is a good idea, philanthropy is a very generous idea, is the right idea, and that the people that have have a responsibility to um, help the other people um, financially in order to gain, um, in order to find those opportunities, that might be more right or more correct than uh, just taking a money away by force of law, by force of government. And whenever you take money away as a tax, you're doing it by force because there's the implication is if you do not pay the tax, we will penalize you either by fines or by jail or by any other sanctions we are able to take against the uh, people that refuse to pay their taxes and contribute to the uh, guaranteed income or the universal basic income. As far as the utility of it goes, there too, we need to be very careful. Um, it might be that it will quiet particular aspects of unrest. That's a good thing, maybe. Uh, it might be that it will encourage laziness or will encourage people not to be productive to, to society. And, you know, when you talk about the arts or you talk about hobbies, hobbies and arts are very, very important, but they should be rewarded by people that find them valuable. They should not be rewarded by people that don't find them valuable. So if we take a universal basic guaranteed income in order to support somebody's pursuit of sports or of a hobby because they'd rather do that than do work, 
um, that is that might not be a useful thing to do. It might not benefit society as a, as a whole. Maybe what benefits society as a whole more is if the artists are able to sell their work. And again, I'm no expert on this and I really, really don't know. And I'm open to argument and I'm open to discussion. And there is a lot of discussion uh, happening. Um, an important part, an important part of this discussion and an important part of any discussion is not to demonize uh, people. And I find this happening sometimes is that when uh, capitalists and socialists uh, argue with each other, the socialists attribute a lot of malice to the capitalists and the capitalists attribute a lot of malice to the socialists. And they're not. They're good people trying to figure out how to operate in a complex world. And they have different sets of values and they have different moralities and they have different priorities. And uh, uh, productive discussion is one discussion in which people believe in the sincereness and genuine um, honesty and genuine kindness of the person that they are uh, they are talking to. So people that oppose universal income, they're not bad people. They're not stingy people. They're not capitalist pigs. They might just have a different view of what fair is and what uh, proper is. And um, the people that support universal-based income, they're not a bunch of uh, lazy freeloaders that want to just strip the wealthy of all their wealth. They're also trying to figure out what a fair way to operate in this world uh, in this world is. So those are just some thoughts that I put together since the last time we spoke about uh, universal income. Fascinating thoughts. I just love the way you, you speak and the way you come across. I mean, it's, just, it's great when you're on stage last time talking like this without any slides. You, you almost made me want to never use slides when I do go on stage to do presentations because as soon as you have slides, people it's, people just fall asleep, I, I think. You know, it's just like there's less focus on you. It's all about the slides, you know. Um, I don't know. Um, so regarding UBI, there's a lot of people that would put that under conspiracy theory as big government and, you know, it's going to be like China. It's going to be like a social credit system. Um, it's all linked with Agenda 2030. There's going to, you know, new world government, that kind of stuff. Um, there are some things about Jenna 2030 20, 20, that are kind of scary. Um, but the thing is, is like, if you're not going to have Agenda 2030, if you're not going to have UBI, then what is your, what is the, the com what are you going to do about Africa and the poor people there? What you propose something different? Because if you look at Agenda 20, the ideals are, in a sense, judo Christian. You know, that's like helping people with water and no people left, left behind, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm, I've been scared by a lot of people's thoughts on Agenda 2030. 20, 20, um, but when I, when I look at the, the what they're trying to do, it's like, you know, how would I get water to somebody in, you know, Uganda or something like that, you know? Um I don't know what the so, balance is there between big government and helping everyone is around us, like us faith-based people are, are commanded to do. Right. And so the, the Uganda, the African problem and getting clean water to Africa is a real, real, is a real issue. And um, uh, I think a, I, I don't know the answer and I don't understand the problem fully to its extent. I know it's a very, very painful problem. Is the problem to tax the wealthy nations and force the wealthy nations to give 
um, to give uh, resources to the poor nations. That might be, but I don't know if that's if that's the right thing to do. Uh, I do know that a bigger problem than uh, resource availability is resource distribution. A lot of resources are lost to corruption, are lost to civil war. There is, uh, for instance, we know that there are enough calories now in the world to feed everybody. There are, I don't know if there's enough water or enough fresh water to, uh, to provide everybody's thirst. I think there is, but there certainly is enough calories in the world to feed everybody. And the reason that people go hungry is because of distribution issues or because of logistic issues or because of corruption and civil war. And very often um, <clears throat> the uh, governments take advantage of poor people and poor people, hungry people are very, very easy to control. Hungry people are very, very uh, obedient and are very, very uh, subservient. And if you control the food supply of a hungry person, um, then you will control them. Hunger is very easily weaponized. If you read about the, the great famines in Russia or in China or in Cambodia, uh, ruthless leaders learn that uh, hunger um, hunger is, is an extremely powerful uh, weapon when you're looking for power. And therefore, providing food to these countries without a way of ensuring that the food is not taken over by corrupt agents is, 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 almost, is almost counterproductive, is almost, uh, is almost useless. And who has to solve that problem? I don't know. I don't know if anybody besides the Africans themselves can solve their problems. Um, for example, I know that um, Liberia or Iberia or, um, or Venezuela in South America are some of the wealthiest countries in the world as far as resources go, as far as minerals, as far as natural uh, resources, as far as um, uh, various kinds of metals, rare metals or kinds of uh, uh, fossil fuels. And yet these are extremely poor countries. And then you take countries perhaps like Japan and Singapore, which are not as wealthy in natural resources, and they do okay because they have a great deal of trust and it's easy to do business and you don't have all your profits eroded by corrupt government. So does it make sense for the wealthy world to give, um, to give its resources to countries like Venezuela or Uganda or, uh, or, or Liberia um, where uh, they have the resources, they're just misusing them and they're misappropriating them and they're corrupt in, in using them. And, and again, I don't mean to be insensitive to human suffering. I'm not. I just don't know if this is the right way uh, to, uh, to, elevate, to elevate the human, uh, human suffering. And it's, it's very, very tempting for me and for others to say, well, if they're suffering, here's money. And that's why um, the ads that show hungry children and say, give us money and you'll be able to relieve suffering are very, very compelling because if it was, because I wish it was that easy. You know, it's easy for me to reach into my credit card or into my wallet and, uh, uh, and give, uh, you know, help the suffering, the suffering people in the Ukraine, the people in the Ukraine that don't have shelter and don't have water and don't have food. They had water and they had food and it was lost in war and it was, uh, it was lost it was taken away uh, from them. And maybe if we give the Ukrainians more water and more food and more shelter, it'll be taken away from them again. I don't know. You know, of course, you're going to help any refugee that is that is suffering and has his uh, home and his safety taken away. And anybody that needs medicine, we're going to try to help them. But, uh, you know, as a person who's uh, who I'm a citizen of Israel and we're always debating what is the best way to help uh, Ukrainians? What is the best way to help 
uh, the Ukraine. And consensus here is if we could somehow, Ukrainians are not asking for, for food and medicine and shelter as much as they're asking to be left alone so that they could pursue their own uh, interests and pursue their own food and uh, and wealth and economy and uh, shelter and not have it destroyed by oppressive uh, enemies. Uh, and that would be the big contribution to the uh, Ukrainian people. So it's a tough problem, and I don't have don't have a good answer. Yeah, with Africa, it's incredibly frustrating because you're basically seeing human nature for greed and money thrive in, a, in an atmosphere where there's not much law and order, democracy. And uh, I don't know why it's so prevalent in Africa versus, you know, America and Europe, what is this weakness about that that continent? And maybe it's just like too much of a jump to get from where they're at to, to real democracy and transparency. Um, but the people there, the poor people, they're just so vulnerable to these these warlords pretty much. What is the default? You know, sometimes I'm tempted to ask the question that you asked. Why can't Africa, human beings have two modes of operating. We can cooperate like we do in the Western world through democratic countries, or we could compete like we do in the African world and use uh, and use uh, uh, power or survival of the fittest or Darwinian uh, economics in order to uh, to survive. And the question that you ask is, why? how could we make Africa be more like America? Or why is Africa not more like America or the Western world? Can't, don't the people see the utility of cooperating and the utility of having law and order and the utility of having effective government? And that's a good question. But it might be that countries like America and Europe are the exception. They're a miracle that happens somehow. And you know, we just got super, super lucky by maybe having some extremely visionary leaders or some very uh, fortunate circumstances where we ended up cooperating with each other. And maybe what's happening in America and in Europe where people are cooperating in order to bring wealth and prosperity and we have effective government that is, for the most part, impartial and fair and dispenses justice in a reasonable way to some extent. And the justice system is more or less predictable and reliable. Uh, with all its shortcomings, maybe that's the exemption. Maybe we should ask, not why does a country like Africa happen? That's that's the default. That's the way it always happens. But we should ask, why does a country like America happen? Why does a country like Europe happen? Where does a country like uh, all the other free countries uh, happen? And how do we encourage uh, encourage that? Um, you know, everybody was so disappointed that when Russia was given an opportunity at democracy, it just went ahead and became another kind of uh, dictatorship and was no better off than being under communist regime. And people will say, well, that's because they had ruthless leadership or because they had corrupt infrastructure and they had corrupt government, which is probably all true. And maybe part of the answer is, is that's just the default. That's what people will fall to uh, by, by default. The, the default state of things is greed and corrupt and exploitation of each other. That's a very pessimistic view of the world, but. Oh, it's, it's hard to be optimistic when you're in Ukraine, you know, it's just like, I was just talking to somebody about 
two hours ago who's come back from the front line and he's about he's in his 50s or something like that you know and he's got like a scar on his chin he's here for like a week or two mm. rest and he's back over there you know it's just like what a what a what a tragedy you know like this guy here is part of our church before you know and then he's got to go over and fight this 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 war of this invasion you know it's just humanity it's just so so stupid i don't think there is a so the the ukrainian I, I do not live in the Ukraine. I haven't lived in the Ukraine for a long time. I worked in Kharkiv, Kharkov, it was called at the time when it was part of the Soviet Union in the late, uh, in the early 90s, um, when it was just beginning Perestroika and Glasnost. And I find the behavior of the Ukrainian people to be very, very inspiring. And people who are loyal to their heritage and to their country and to their countrymen and to their traditions and are willing to risk a great deal in order to preserve their honor. Um, it, I haven't felt that way about patriotism for a long time. And seeing the Ukrainian patriotism uh, is, is very special. And, you know, Jews have a complicated history with Ukraine. Ukraine hasn't always been kind uh, to, the, uh, to the Jews over history. But at the moment, Israelis and Jews find the Ukrainian uh, behavior to be extremely, extremely patriotic. I share your pessimism. I share your pessimism. You're up against a ruthless bully uh, who who will use almost limitless resources in order to uh, to defeat you. And, um, and even if, you know, even if Ukraine wins, Ukraine is going to be not what the Ukraine was two years ago before this uh, before this offensive uh, started, right? Even winning in this case is losing. Uh, so I share your I share your pessimism for sure, but I I do also take deep inspiration from the uh, from the good people of of Ukraine, um, and they'll have an amazing story to tell their grandchildren one day. They really really will. That fellow when he tells his grandchildren about his scar. And he, and hopefully he'll he'll survive to tell it. He'll have a very very inspiring uh, story to uh, to tell. The Ukrainian people are quite strong today at the church. There's a, a grandma, or similar age as a grandma. She's cleaning the windows, but the windows are like three or four meters off the ground. And she's on. She climbed up top of the windowsill with a ladder, and then she went outside the building where there's a ledge. And just washing the windows, and <laughs> it's like you just never see that in the West. You never see a grandmother on the outside of the b- building cleaning the, the windows. You know, it's not something that that we asked for, but it's just it's this mentality of just get up and do things and and not worry about like health and safety. You're, just, you're <laughs> describing strong two very attitude. interesting. You're defining two two aspects of strength that I find. Very inspiring. I love that story. I love the story of the grandma. It's a great story. And I'll tell you two elements of that story that stick out to me. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, One thing is, uh, during very, very hard times, we find routine to be deeply, deeply inspiring. And there is almost one of the most routine things we do is cleaning your windows. That's what people do. And in the time of war, for somebody to say, War or not war, if a, a dirty window needs to be cleaned. And the fact that she's a grandma says that she doesn't forgive herself because of her age. 
yeah, old people need clean windows too. And old people, and you know, she's not going to wait for anybody else to do it because nobody else will do it, perhaps. So that's one aspect of the story that I really find deeply touching is that if a window is dirty, it's going to get cleaned and I'm not going to wait for somebody else to come clean it up for me. The other thing is people tending to their religion. When people clean the windows of a church or of a mosque or of a synagogue, but in your case, it's of a church, it's their way of saying this shrine, this spiritual place, this place of God, this place of worship means something to me. I am still a spiritual being. I am capable of thinking about things beyond my survival. I, you know, I, Food and medicine and shelter are all very important to me, but I also care about my spirituality and I want my place of worship to be a clean place. And a clean place includes having windows that are clean on the inside and on the outside. And I don't know how sophisticated this, this babushka was, but she certainly understands that a place of worship deserves to be clean because a clean place of worship means a clean spirit, means a clean soul, means a clean people. means a, and, and that's something that I find deeply, deeply inspiring, really. And she probably didn't mean to do anything inspiring. She just meant to clean the windows. But, uh, but it's, it's, it's a wonderful story, Nikos. Uh, Nikos. And, you know, really, we, we, and it's almost, you know, if I was a photographer looking for a cover of a magazine, that might be the kind of picture that you would put as an old lady with a, with a hair cover tied under her neck, uh, climbing up and trying to, uh, uh, trying to clean the windows of a, uh, of a place of worship, because that's where people come in order to find some spirituality and some connection. Wow. Thank you. Well, maybe one day you'll have to come visit this, this, this town, you know, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of Jewish heritage here. Um, yeah. you mentioned, I want to talk a bit about the, the speaking versus the PowerPoint. You mentioned it and it's a topic that really, that's really very, very interesting to me. You know, we are much better speakers than we are writers and we learn how to speak without going to school. And you know, anybody that has little kids knows that you learn how to speak from a very, very young age and speaking is a very effective form of communication. Whereas writing is not such an effective form of communication. Writing is a representation of the sounds. And I'm talking about Western writing, not Chinese or Japanese, but the Western writing, the phonetic writing, the, the, um, um, the acrylic or the English, the Western languages, uh, each, each letter represents a, a, a sound of some sort. But it's not as wealthy and kids have to learn how to read and they learn how to translate ideas from sounds into visuals and back from visuals into sounds. And we like to do it because PowerPoint sometimes gives us structure, it gives us form, it allows me to to you to be more uh, uh, I don't know organized in my thoughts. But we're natural speakers. Kids are natural speakers. Adults are natural speakers. We are all good storytellers. We're not all good PowerPointers. And uh, there might be a this might be an opportunity to call. Drop the PowerPoint for a while. Go back to just telling your story and sharing your thoughts. You're much more interesting than your slides are. And um, if you could learn how to talk without slides, that might be uh, that might be a good thing. That might be PowerPoint has not been a blessing. 
for human knowledge and for human understanding. Yeah, as soon as you put, as soon as you have slides, you're basically telling people, we could have done this online, you know. I mean, you could say, well, get a video camera, you could have been online watching it as well, but there's, there's something special about being in an audience where you can look into the person's eyes who's delivering the message, you know. Um, if you look at, think about Absolutely. all these big rock concerts and things like that, they don't have PowerPoint slides with the words up when they're doing the, the songs. You know, everyone's, okay, they don't have a screen up, but they're showing the, the singer or the performers. Right. So, right. And even watching them on recording is not the same. If you've ever been at a rock concert, you are in the presence of something magical, something godlike. There's a reason that they call these people stars. There's a real reason that they call these people stars. There's something heavenly about them, and there's something that happens in the masses, in the crowds, the combination of the music and the, and the mass amount of people. Uh, does something to your soul that that PowerPoint will never do, and uh, that uh, Ho- that even a recording. Hopefully there'll, there'll be a backlash. Yeah, hopefully there'll be a backlash against AI for things that are human. Um, so when people have a choice, there's there's going to be a hopefully there'll be a, a segment, a large section of the population that will prefer the human. Um, version of a product service versus an AI version, even when bots come around that can, you know, do massages and do like operations or check your teeth. Hopefully there'll still be a segment of society large enough to keep people that were specialized in these skills in, in, in a job. So, you know, maybe this is even a topic for a different podcast, but I want to throw an idea out here. And I've been thinking about this since we met back in Vienna a couple of months ago. There are three things that typify the human experience that I think AI does not have and AI cannot have. There are three things that I thought of. There are probably more. AI is not mortal, and we are mortal. And a big part of our humanity comes from our mortality. The reason I invest in relationships, the reason I care about war, the reason I care about all kinds of things. The reason my time is precious to me is because I'm mortal. I know that my God-given time on this earth is only a couple of decades, and then I will be here no more. And anything that I do, anything that I plan to accomplish has to be accomplished in a short time. And I don't know if it's possible to simulate that experience in uh, in a machine. A machine will take risks that a human being can't take. A machine will... Uh, will damage relationships that a human being might not damage. My relationships are all based on the fact that I am uh, mortal. The other thing that is important for me as a human being is as a mortal being, I consume resources. I need food. I need shelter. I need medicine. And as such, I need a job. A job is a big part of what I am. I need work. I need to train. I need stimulating work. I need work that I provide value to other people. I need to engage with other people. I need to provide for my family. And and since ChatGPT doesn't need a job and he doesn't have to work and he doesn't have to win bread for himself or an AI engine, I don't know if he'll ever be able to be human in the same way that I'm human. And the third thing that I have that is uniquely human is my sexuality. I need intimacy with other human beings. I need, and that goes together with the need to create a family and the need to 
have, have a relationship, but I desperately need intimacy. And the reason I'm desperately need intimacy is because I've conditioned by, by years of evolution to want to propagate, to want to have children and to want to have a, uh, have a family. And because I need intimacy, I want to set up a family and I want to provide for that family. And I want to invest in my uh, romantic relationships and in my friendships and in my uh, extended family. It all goes, it all goes together. Now, if you take an AI engine that is asexual or agender and immortal and doesn't have any worries about a job or about feeding himself or about ever getting bored or about providing purpose or about being useful to other AI agents or to other people, he doesn't have a fundamental part of the human experience. Now, he might be able to simulate it, but that would be like dealing with a psychopath. Nobody likes a psychopath. A psychopath knows how to manipulate human emotions to achieve his own goals, but there's nobody home. There's no real person there when you're dealing with a psychopath. And I, everybody finds dealing with a psychopath to be very, very disturbing, right? I want somebody who really understands it, who really understands it in the, in the deep sense. And the, so I might get very squirmish if there is a AI that one day is able to simulate the need for a job, the fear of death, and, and the, the sexuality of a being, I will find that to be very, very creepy. I will not find that to be um, um, a human experience uh, at all, I, I think. Now, that's just the start of it. And there's probably somebody out listening to the podcast that could elaborate on these thoughts even more or take them someplace else. But um, hopefully, all my friends will always be human. All my friends will have a unique appreciation of who I am, will appreciate my sense of humor, will appreciate who I am. Hopefully my romantic partner or partners will all be uh, of, of the kind that are of the human kind. Um, and, um, and when, you know, when my time comes and I'm on my deathbed, looking back, looking back at what I've accomplished in life, I really would like to be surrounded by loved ones, children, family, wife, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, hopefully, and not by AI machines with which I'm going to share my, my last significant moments. I would not find that a meaningful death in any, uh, in any way, in any way. That's a bit, uh, um, a bit more than you had asked for when we started this podcast, but, uh, it's just, you know, some thoughts. So going back to faith, we both believe yeah you being Jewish and Christian, that we were made in God's image. Mm -hmm. And God, in a sense, is infinite. However great or big AI could become in this universe with all the quantum computers and everything, God is always going to be infinitely greater, powerful, more wise than this, this AI because you can't exhaust God. And so mankind has been created in God's image. So that can never be replicated by an AI, the depth to that relationship. You'll never be able to replicate God's image, even if you have the most clever, super intelligent thing, because it never, it never accesses that design fundamental beyond the fabric of the universe that God has created in mankind. I'd like to think that's true. I hope that's true. Now, I am capable of creating another sentient being, another being capable of religious feelings. 
My wife and I did it five times, but it's only through very, very particular mechanisms. So we're created in God image and we know how to create other things created in God's image, but we only know how to do it using the, the, the biological mechanisms provided to us by God. We do not, I think, I hope, I hope you're right. I desperately hope you're right. We do not know how to create sentience beings capable of religious feeling that are not biology based, that are not human based, that are not, that do not come from a mother and a father. Um, I hope you're right. I, I really, really hope you're right. I hope that time, I hope that your, your observation stands the test of time. I would be, I would be horrified if one day somebody created a machine that is capable of uh, religious experience or capable of spirituality in the, in the, in the deep sense that a human being is. And maybe we can't, maybe it goes together with the other three things that I mentioned. It has to go together with death and sexuality and, and the, the, the desire for immortality that, that makes us humans unique. I, hope you're right I think it's uh I think it's a corruption that mankind wants to make God out of AI. It's, it's, it's just like this, there's this pride in mankind. It's like, hmm, I can do a better job than God. I can create my own God. Like that movie. One of my favorite movies is, um, oh, what's it called again? The guy who played the Pirates of the Caribbean. Transcendence. You know, it's. Right. But it's like there's something wrong with mankind that wants to try and one-up God and, and just make something. This mankind wants power, you know. I mean, I, I'm guilty of myself. I run one of the largest Discord servers in the world for for AI community. Um, but That's it, an it, interesting... With, with creation, though. You can't compete with a cell. A cell is... The, one single cell is more vastly more complicated than any microchip we've made, you know. That's you know that's interesting, and I don't know if the desire is 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 a bad one or not. The, one of the first stories in the Bible, one of the first stories in the Bible, is the story of the Tower of Babel, where people said, "We have this amazing technology. Let's build let's build something very tall, the tallest possible. Let's build something so tall it'll reach the heavens." Right? They discovered the technology in, until the Tower of Babel. This is a story told in the in the um, early chapters of Genesis. Until the story of until the um, until the Tower of Babel, the main uh, material of construction was stone, and stone is heavy. And stone, you could only you could at most build a a structure that is one, maybe two stories tall. Once you have materials like cement and mortar and uh, brick, brick, uh, the advantage of brick is that it's very very um, symmetrical. It's rectangular, and it's very easy to build. Any anybody that has played with Legos knows that once you have a, a properly structured brick, it's, it's I wouldn't say infinitely scalable, but it's very, very scalable. And one of the child's first wishes is, when you watch a child playing with Lego is, how tall can I make this? How tall, we all remember the child in us is, right? If I had all the bricks in the world, how tall could I make a Lego structure? And kids are fascinated by tall, especially boys, but, but girls too. And, so what you're describing is once computers are capable of, of thought, I'm using the term loosely, once computers are capable of, of thought and capable of emulating human behavior, then our immediate nature is how far can this go? Let's see what happens. How far could I push this? What, could, what else 
does it know how to do? Can it hold a conversation? Can it play chess? Can it drive a car? Can it fly a plane? Can it teach a class? Can it pass the test? And that's part of our human ability. How much am I capable where I'm capable of, of, of doing something? Now, you said, you said that a cell made by God is much more complicated than a microchip made by human beings. But the truth is, God made people that are capable of making microchips, which is quite an impressive feat. So God, right? That means God didn't make a microchip. God made something much better than a microchip. He made a human being that is capable of making a microchip. Now that's amazing, right? We can't make something that is capable of making a, a microchip. We can't even make one cell to use your, to make, to use your words. But God, so, you know, a microchip, considering that the microchip was created by humans and all they are, each and every one of us is just a collection of cells. And we were able to put our uh, brain power together and we were able to cooperate and collaborate and learn and practice and use the scientific method and use manufacturing methods and actually industrialize a microchip. I think that's it. First of all, you know, that's an amazing tribute to God that he was able to create such a complicated species that is capable of making microchips. And it also says something about human beings. Human beings are quite cool. They really are uh, quite a cool species. Yes, they're capable of being, we mentioned Africa and Russia before, they're capable of being horribly oppressive and horribly uh, uh, destructive and vindictive and almost sadistic. Human beings are capable of evil beyond which any other species is capable of, and they industrialize it. That is true. On the other hand, when we collaborate and cooperate and put our curiosity together, we're capable of amazing things. We really, really are. And the fact that most humans today in the modern world do their work in air-conditioned buildings, um, at least in the Western world, and they, they're, you know, they, even people that drive and operate farming tools is an amazing thing. And we just hope that that blessing continues on to the other part of humanity that hasn't yet benefited from these blessings. I think that the happiest um, work what we can do is actually farming. I mean, homesteading. We This modern man working in offices, it just doesn't do the good for your soul as, as having a... You know, working, working with animals, working in the field, being in in the sort of ecosystem of that, and now we have this situation where that skills of homesteading and farming are the only, in a sense, guaranteed ways that you're going to be able to feed yourself without UBI once AI takes more and more of our jobs. And so there's a whole bunch of our populations that are weak because there's people that have zero skills farming, zero skills growing anything, and um, they're just going to be they're totally, totally dependent on UBI now. I might be one of those. If my job is taken away by a machine and I'm not smart enough to find a new job, I don't know how to hunt. I don't know how to farm. I don't know how to sew clothes. I don't know how to do any of those things. The only thing I know how to do is go to a store and buy stuff. And I'm, I'm very good at that. But, uh, but that's pretty much the only thing I know how to do. I know how to go shopping. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm I, I hope it doesn't come to that. Uh, but and I know how to program machines and I know how to design systems and I know how to uh, communicate effectively with people. 
I hope that one of those skills is still going to be needed in the day of, uh, of UI. Uh, otherwise, yeah, we have some figuring out to do. Right. If we have this discussion again in 20 years, I might have a totally different perspective on things. I think it's quite naive of humanity to, to have like a, the most useless thing to have is basically a garden with grass on it. It doesn't do anything unless you have like a goat or something like that that's eating the grass. There's zero survival utility of having just a garden of grass in it. Based on my my studying of this a whole survival topic of the last year and a half, you could get so much more nutrients from just putting in carrots and cabbages, you know, things like that. Well, you know and, why um, we we know why we grow grass, why we have lawns. Um, one of our ways of showing wealth, any luxury item, a luxury watch or a luxury car, doesn't tell time any better than a regular uh, $30 Casio or a regular Toyota. The reason that we get luxury items is because we want to show our wealth. We want to show our power. We want to show our earning ability. That helps us attract mates in some cases, right? Um, and uh, that's why a peacock uh, who, whose, whose feathers provided no, um, um, no advantage and you know, it doesn't make it flee faster or it doesn't make it find food faster, but it makes it find better mates. And then it could have more, more little peacock babies. Uh, so the reason we want to have lawns is because it shows I have spare land, I have spare water, I have spare labor, I could, and I know how to flaunt it. And uh, it doesn't make me happy, or perhaps. Um, and um, once we're down to survival, you're probably right. I'd be much better at growing up some turnip, turnips and cabbages. I don't know how, how it would show up on, um, you know, on the mating market. If I said, I have a great, I have this, I have a small house with a patch of ground and some, and some turnips and, uh, and radishes. Uh, I don't know. Right. Uh, right. And you know, I, uh, I wear a $30 Casio and, uh, and take a scooter to work. Uh, but, um, but, it, but it'll feed me. Unless you've got like kids that you, you you know you can have you know it's good for playing football and that kind of stuff. That's that's a good use case for having it. But maintaining a grass lawn is incredibly boring. Okay, I like the smell of grass once you mow it, um, but compared to having like a patch of land where you're maintaining, uh, you're plowing the soil. I love plowing the soil. That's a great workout, great for your back. Um, you know, and they're digging up the weeds. I mean, if people haven't done it, it's great planting different types of food in there, seeing the different types of food growing. And uh, in, in God's wisdom, he made a lot of the different trees around us that that harvest at different times of the year. And some of the plants, like uh, fig trees, there's like a three or four week period where the fruits are coming at different times. And then you can dry that food and, and um, store it for the winter time. You can do that with, uh, Ukrainians are great at doing it. You get tomatoes. We have a lot of tomatoes right now in Ukraine. You literally, people get boxes of them, take them home, and they'll have like 50 big jars, and they'll basically pasteurize them by boiling water and putting it in there one or two times. And then they put like herbs in there, like dill and some, I think some vinegar and things like that. And what they do is they'll have like, imagine like 20 different, 20 big 
containers with like t- cucumbers and tomatoes and they put the boiling water in there and then they put like two or three layers of um, blankets on top of it and that thing pasteurizes all night long sealed with special uh, me- metal containers that the uh, lids that they do they boil and put them on it locks in you've got your survival food for the winter it's not difficult even just common trees around here you can learn from <coughs> creation like a squirrel taught me um, how to eat from a hazel tree. I didn't even realize that the hazel tree produced hazelnuts, <laughs> but I watched a squirrel and it was eating something over there and I thought, oh, it's found hazelnuts. I went there, tried and ate it myself. I actually learned survival skills from a squirrel. Well, you know, gardening is very, very satisfying and toiling the ground is certainly a good workout. But there is comfort in knowing that even if you don't work all that well and even if it doesn't rain. And even if the animals dig up your seeds and eat them or the birds eat them or the animals eat them, you still have a job to go to that. There's, there's comfort in that. When you work the farm, when you toil the farm, when you toil the land and you know that if you're not blessed by rain this winter, you might go hungry next year. You might watch one of your children die. Then farming takes on a whole different, uh, a whole different, uh, form. Then the curse of with the toil of your brow shall you eat your bread becomes a real, real curse. So, yes, it's it, farming is great and farming is fun and farming is very, very satisfying when it works, when you're, you're successful or when you have a fallback plan. But if you've ever met a farmer who had to who had a bad year and then at the end of the year, he had to eat his farm animals. He had to eat his oxen or his sheep or his goats. And knowing that he's eating his potential to ever survive and that he's, that, that's the last year that he's in business, but he's, he's, he's postponing his doom by one year. You, you, it's, it's, it's a very, very sad place to be. It's a very, very desperate place, uh, to, uh, uh, to be. So I, I agree with you. Farming can be very, very satisfying and it's an important thing and, and eating. And growing your own food and then eating food that you grow yourself is a deeply satisfying experience. It's an experience of, I I did it myself and I accomplished it. But there's a downside there. There is a downside. And industry has uh, made us, with a lot of infrastructure, be a very, very safe society. Back to UBI, right? UBI, I think farmers are also going to need... Uh, are going to need also some basic income because farmers also could fall on bad weather, fall on bad times, fall on bad seed, fall on somebody that steals or a tractor that dries over their land or some other misfortune, or they might might be not very skilled at what they do. Not everybody knows how to be a very good uh, a very good farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that. There's, there's some things that are really easy that. In Ukraine is common that it's just like in the past almost every day now I take raw goat's milk from the goat and it's warm and drink it and it tastes better than this pasteurized crap we get in supermarkets right a goat does, is does an amazing every day this goat produces a bottle of milk 365 days a year I don't know but um, you basically goats are such great machines right you got all this grass around you you right. can't eat and i just a goat right now turns that grass into milk 
Yes, and that that's a wonderful thing. And I hope nobody eats your goat. Um, I hope, uh, yeah, I hope your goat continues to surviving. That that's 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 a wonderful thing. Now, if your herd ever gets sick and dies, then you'll figure it out. Then you'll buy another goat, or you'll you'll do whatever you have to do. But uh, you know, yeah, I'm not I'm not criticizing that at all. Yeah, that's great, and it's considered you know. If it's not, if you drink it fresh, it's supposed to be healthy. It's only when it starts, uh, you know, when it stays on the shelf for too long that you need to pasteurize it. That's that's a disconnect that we have. We have this unnatural society. I think a lot of mental health problems basically happens because people don't have goats, and they have they have computers. They just God designed us to oh. be in nature, right? And we have this artificial life of just technology everywhere and that's why a lot of mental health problems happen i think uh that is that is true people used to be a lot more comfortable with their animals and be a lot more home with their animals and and when you deal with animals that's why people today even in the modern world people find pets to be very very good for their mental health and be very good more than more than children some say pets um, I teach you a certain kind of restraint, a certain type of calmness, a certain type of, of uh, sympathy and empathy. Um, and in days of old, people didn't need pets. They had cattle, they had goats, they had chickens, they had whatever they had. You don't need pets if you're surrounded by animals all day, sentient beings that depend on you, sentient to some extent or another. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I'm with you on that one. Everybody a, great, get a, a great pet to have is just a, just a chicken, just a female chicken going around the, the stables and all that stuff. The one that you just don't eat. They're actually really clever. They're really intelligent and they're kind of low, good for your, your um, blood pressure, I think. Okay. I'll have to convince my wife of that one. I'll have to convince my wife to get a chicken. Um... You know, it's it's very interesting. You know, this is a totally different topic, but it's interesting that in days of old, when people lived with farm animals and had, uh, you know, and had beasts all over—chickens and goats and cows and pigs—they had no problem with eating them. We didn't see vegetarianism as a thing until the modern age, when people started becoming more and more detached from their animals, and the the, the food process became more in, in, industrialized. That you see the call for. Uh, the call for vegetarianism. And maybe that's, you know, part of the call for vegetarianism is a protest against the industrialization of the, uh, the food make of the meat making uh, process of the uh, beef and poultry and pork uh, industries. And many vegetarians say, well, if I grew my own animals, I wouldn't feel the same way about it. Just, just a thought. Well, maybe if I come to, to visit um, your part of Israel sometime, maybe whatever, two or three years, and I, and I visit your place, and it's growing all sorts of turnips and carrots, and there's signs of goats and chickens. I'll know that my influence is, was, was good. Absolutely. And yes, Nicholas, Nikos, right? If you ever come to Israel, I would love to show you around. This is a one. Have you ever been here? Never been. It's a wonderful, wonderful country. It's a wonderful country. Well, um, thanks, Abraham, for that incredible time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Didn't disappoint. Thank you. This um uh I hope my audience liked it. I hope you enjoyed the Nico show. And um we'll have some 
more interesting guests coming up for you shortly than Nikos Shores. Thanks, Abraham. Nikos, thank you very much for having me. This has been a real, real pleasure. Really. Thank you. Thank you very much. See you next time.